decided to do this week, next week Steve is going to bring a message from Isaiah chapter 9, so I thought it would be a good idea to bring a message that prepares for the, the more clear prophecy of the Messiah, uh, which we find in Isaiah and in many other places in the Old Testament. And I thought we'd look at the first prophecy in the Bible. And the first prophecy in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to a, a look at Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Now you can see that I've got five, uh, five different uh, headings here. So uh, we should, but don't worry, we should get out of here by, you know, three or four o'clock. So uh, just sit back and we'll get through this. Um, the main passage I want to look at is chapter 3, verse 15. You're probably all familiar with it, but I'll read it to you. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the prophecy. It's kind of veiled in mysterious language. But there's, there's uh, enough there that we can uh, derive clear meaning from it. And of course, because we have a full Bible now in front of us, we can... Uh, understand it a lot more. But this this uh, curse from God was put on the serpent, and the serpent, of course, is Satan, uh, identified, by the way, as such in the last book of the Bible. In uh, Revelation chapter 12, we're told that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So this is, this is uh, the devil, not just any old serpent. And we can, uh, we can understand that behind Earth's history is another history. Behind all of the events that have happened is another big event that's been going on since this time. In fact, before this time, before Genesis 3. And that is the cosmic battle between the supernatural forces of good and evil, between God and Satan. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, when I talk about this battle, please don't think that this drama, this cosmic drama, is an even fight. It's not. But it is something that... Uh, God, in his wisdom and in his providence, is allowed to unfold in his creation. Um, There are a lot of questions that might be asked about, well, why did God permit it? Why did God allow the serpent into the garden in the first place? I mean, if he'd just not allowed Satan to show up there in the Garden of Eden, none of this would have happened and we'd be all, well, we wouldn't be here, would we? We wouldn't be Actually, there'd be no reason to preach about it and teach about it. The history of the world would be very different. And the answer to such questions is, yes, but God wants it this way. And God had his reason for this way, for things to end up this way. 
It didn't have to. God did not make Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobey him. He did not make him. He didn't put these thoughts of, oh, let's disobey. Let's follow the serpent. Let's do our own thing. He didn't put those thoughts into their heads. But he knew they would make them. Okay? He did know that that would happen. But you see, there was no excuse for the woman to listen to the serpent, and there was certainly no excuse for the man to listen to the woman over and above listening to God. These failings and these weaknesses were on them, and they led to all of the trouble and all of the pain and the long, painful um roll out of history that we're part of. So having said that, I want to look at uh, the background to all of this, first with the enemy, Satan himself, secondly then with the fall that happened because our first parents listened to him and followed him, then to the excuses that they gave, the consequences of them listening, and then Finally, the wait for the promised Redeemer. And again, I'll get through these quite quickly. Don't worry about it. It's not going to be an extra long sermon at all. So verses 1 through 5 provide the introduction to what happened. God had made everything good, everything perfect, and he had blessed them. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, in our, in our circumstances and in this world, you can't go around naked out in uh, public. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of shame involved in not covering up, and rightly so. This world is not the way that it was meant to be. The animals have got hair to cover themselves up. Human beings don't. They are different. They're not just animals. But in the beginning, there was no shame involved because that was the way God made them. The very fact that it's uncomfortable to talk about it now shows, or at least gives Uh, uh, an inkling as to how fallen this world is and how in much of repair it is. And by the way, you can't, you can't repair it by a shortcut of saying, you know, peace and love and, and, uh, abandonment to, uh, all of our baser lusts, like some people think it is, and, and just, uh, say that's part of innocence. You can't, be like a a nudist going away in a nudist colony thinking that they are somehow um, going back to nature and going back to their um, innocence. They're not. That actually is a sign that they don't have a conscience or that they've seared their consciences. You ought to have a conscience about uh, covering up. 
But how did this all come about? Well, look at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, he was a serpent, but this particular serpent is Satan himself. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the answer to that that she should have given is no. He hasn't said that at all. And why are you asking me this question about what God said? Yes? What's it got to do with you? But she didn't. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. No, he didn't actually. That's not what God said. If you look at chapter 2, You will see that uh, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, first of all, God didn't say anything about not touching it. The woman put that in there. She added to the word of God. Beware. When people add to the word of God, God means what he says, okay? You start to add to the word of God, then you get, uh, you start getting people to believe those additions that you've made. And they no longer believe what God said, they believe what you said. So be very careful of that. What she also did is say, lest you die. But God didn't say, lest you die. It's not like a, be careful, don't put your, uh, fingers in the electric socket lest you get electrocuted. Okay, God didn't say that. He said, no, you will surely die. He was much more firm and adamant than that. Do you see? You will surely die. So the woman's paraphrase here, and that's basically what it was, the paraphrase of what God said, did not represent exactly what God said. So if you're carrying around a paraphrase of the Bible, get yourself a proper Bible. Get yourself a real Bible, okay? Don't rely on the paraphrase. The paraphrase is a paraphrase of the real thing. can be of help sometimes, but it's not the thing you put your faith in. So we're not off to a very good start here, are we? Verse 3, you shall not eat it nor touch it lest you die. Now, God didn't say you couldn't touch it. And he said you will surely die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, notice he puts the surely back in. He knows exactly what God said. Now, if she was being tricked, and she was being tricked, by the way, She should have seen that. She should have seen that Satan actually repeated what God had said so that he knew, which means that the question that he'd asked in the beginning was a disingenuous question. 
Now, you see, he's contradicting the word of God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, a couple of comments here. In the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Well, what does that assume? That they're closed, that their eyes are not opened. That God has made them and put them in this paradise, but their eyes are not open to see. Do you see that? There's something being hidden, something being obstructed, something that God is not letting them see and they have a right to see. And the problem is, you see, that God knows that he's doing this. God's a big meanie. And he knows that when you, uh, when you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat from the fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but can you see here there's some kind of uh, irrationalism going on, okay? You have to kind of step back to see the irrationalism. But it's right there in the text. And the irrationalism, and sin, by the way, is always irrational. Temptation is always irrational. It it seems to be logical. But if you look back, you take a step back, it actually always is irrational. It doesn't really make sense. What is the irrationalism in the text here? Who put the tree in a garden in the first place? God. If God put the tree in the garden in the first place, then surely the reason for putting the tree there is not that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Because otherwise he wouldn't have put it in the garden, would he? No, the reason for the tree is another reason. The reason for the tree is as a test. A test of their commitment, a test of their love, a test of their obedience to him. Now, you're all familiar that uh, love, if it's going to be deepened, needs to be tested in some way. I'm not saying in a, uh, a harsh way, but people that you love are people you depend upon, and you depend upon them because you trust them, and you trust them because they have proven to you over a period of time that they are worthy of your of your trust, of your love. And that love, therefore, deepens. Do you see that? It's not a su- it, it, it might start fairly superficially, but as they become more and more trustworthy, then that love deepens. As you know them more, they know you more. So if something like that is going on here, God puts the tree in the middle of the garden, tells them not to eat of it, warns them what will be the consequences if they do eat of it, and then leaves them to the rest of paradise that he's made for them. It's not as if he's ungenerous and uh, miserly. 
I don't know about you, but I would love to see what Eden was like. I'm sure it far surpasses anything that can be seen on the earth today. So God blessed them and put them in a beautiful, stunning environment. But it, Satan was insinuating that something is, uh, that God is keeping back. And if you just eat that fruit that God had put there right in front of you, you'd be like God. And you'd know good and evil. Well, God does know good and evil because he's God. And this behind the creation of the world, remember, stands this cosmic g- drama between God and Satan and the demon- demonic realm. That was something that human beings were not supposed to be part of. Jesus said that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Unfortunately, because we became part of that trouble, we also, if we do not trust in Jesus, end up in that horrible place. The question comes up, are we meant to know the depths of good and evil? Now, by the way, uh, this is a, a Hebrew figure of speech called a merism. Okay? You don't need to remember it. I'm just telling you. It's called a merism. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Is another merism. Basically, it's a line that, that is uh, talking about everything that is involved in it. You see? So the heavens and the earth is all of creation. Okay? Good and evil is all of the ethical, moral uh, fiber of God's universe. Okay? Human beings are not supposed to know all of that. God's the one who knows all of that. Because he's the creator of it. Anyway, let's continue. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. This is the fall. The fall is just a a theological term for what happened once our first parents disobeyed the commandment of God in a paradise of God. The fall was calamitous. Calamitous. What is the woman doing here in verse 6? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she just had this conversation with the serpent, and she saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes. There was nothing wrong in that. If you look in uh, chapter 2, look at verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is, what? Pleasant to the sight and good for food. So the, the biblical narrative says that they were pleasant, the trees were pleasant to the eyes and good for food. But then the woman adds something else. 
A tree desirable to make one wise. You see, so, so knowing good and evil means knowing more. Do you see? Having knowledge and wisdom that you didn't have before. And she took it and she ate and uh, her husband ate too. What was happening here? Something that is alluded to, but not plainly spoken of, but it's a very, very crucial thing. When the woman looked at the tree, she was no longer looking at the tree as an obedient creature. The top, the height of the creation of God. But under God and under his word. She no longer took the word of God as her reference point. She now had another word in her head. And that other word was calling her or bringing her away from the reference point of the word of God and the descriptions of God and the commands of God. And so when she was standing in front of the tree, she no longer was being obedient and she no longer was being dependent. She was being independent, autonomous. And when she sized up that tree, she was doing it as an independent observer. Folks, We were not created to be independent observers of God's world. We were designed to depend upon what God says about his own world. And in that dependence would be our freedom. But there we are. She decided to be independent. And the husband that was with her, Adam, who had uh, been spoken to very plainly by God, he ate, and this was a high-handed sin from Adam, in the face of what God had said. So the woman is not blamed for this sin. The man is. Now, what happened? Well, the eyes of both of them were opened. Oh, well, great. That's just what the serpent had said. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And indeed, their eyes were opened. And hallelujah, this is wonderful. And they knew they were naked. The first thing that happened then is a contradiction of chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says they were not ashamed... They looked at each other with this newfound knowledge and they became ashamed. They saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. <coughs> Something's gone wrong here. Oh, they know something. It says they knew that they were naked, yes? So they got knowledge, but this wasn't a the knowledge they were supposed to have. This is the knowledge of shame. Do you see? This is the knowledge of embarrassment. Embarrassment, shame, it belongs in our world. And if you forget about uh, embarrassment and shame, then you commit all kinds of wickedness. 
But it's not supposed to be that way. But, well, they looked around, being intelligent people, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then what? They heard, verse 8, the voice of, the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. You see, it's not just enough that they cover themselves. Now they have to hide themselves from God. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin is utterly irrational. Let's, let's see how, uh, how silly this gets. Let's look at these excuses. This is the third point I want to make. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, this is not because God doesn't know where they are. But, you see, God has made us in his image. Okay? He's made us in his image. That means we're all very privileged. We are all in an honored position because we're human beings, man and woman. And he has given us abilities and strengths that mirror him in a small way, but they still mirror God. Things that the animals don't and can't do, human beings can do. Where are you supposed to be here? What's happened? Maybe there's something even deeper in what God is saying. Like, where are you as far as your relationship to me is concerned? So he, Adam, verse 10 says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, they visited before. God has showed up there many times before and they had fellowshiped and they were not afraid and they weren't even self-conscious about those things. Didn't have that knowledge, you see. Having that knowledge brought them under bondage, didn't it? What it did is it brought them under a, uh, under fear. And Adam acknowledges this. Things were different now. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Do you think Adam had ever been afraid of God before? God did not make Adam to be afraid of him. God wants to fellowship with him. Yes, there must be that reverence for who God is, but there shouldn't be that love, that fear. Remember, John says in 1 John, perfect love drives out fear. And there should be perfect love between God and us. Unfortunately, that is no longer the case, though. But in Jesus Christ, there should be no longer any terror of God or of his judgment. So I was afraid of you, and I went and hid myself, as if you can hide from God. Do you see how irrational sin is? 
I mean, it, it makes sense. I'm, I'm afraid, so I go and hide. You're like, you know, you're, you're in a forest or something. You hear a bear or something. You might go and try and get, hide or get away from it or something. I don't know. I'm not really much of a bear guy. I'm not, don't know much about them. But um, you might try and kind of conceal yourself. But God, God knows exactly where you are. You can't hide from God, can you? It's not like, it's not like, you know, oh, I'll go behind this tree and God won't be able to see me. What's the logic there? Still, that was his excuse. So how does God do, do this? Well, he, God, God conducts this conversation in a way that is not condemnatory at first. He's trying to get the truth out of Adam. He's trying to treat Adam as a responsible human being. Who told you that you were naked? Is the first question. Who told you? Didn't get that from me. We've been talking all this time. I've been, I created you. We've been uh, fellowshipping all this time. I never brought that up. I never said, oh, you, by the way, you know. You better go and run and get some clothes on before you show up next time. There was an I wasn't a problem. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? God is asking these questions to get Adam to think and then to confess to him. And this, these are important things. You need to understand this about God. Okay? God's going to ask you at the judgment these kinds of straightforward questions. Have you been concealing the truth about me? Have you not been facing the fact that I'm real? Have you been living your life as if I don't exist? When God's there right in front of you and he's asking you that question, it won't do to make up silly excuses, will it? The the answer is, yes, I've been living that way. Let's see what Adam does in answer to the questions he's been asked. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, that's profound, isn't it? That is that supposed to be an answer of have you eaten? And you know, how come you're naked? Or know that you're naked? Or you know, have problems with the fact that you're naked? The woman whom you gave to me, you, you see, God, you gave me this woman, and she's just a, a she's a troublemaker. If it wasn't for this woman. I would never be in this trouble that I'm in now. We wouldn't be having this this awkward conversation that we're having now. It's the woman's fault. But it's not just the woman's fault. It's actually your fault, God, because you gave me the woman. Do you see what's going on? So his reason for eating was not knowing... 
clearly knowing, oh, God said, don't eat of this tree. Okay? And eating it anyway, it was, oh, the woman told me, gave it to me, and therefore it's all right for me to eat. Not a good and strong position to be in. So the Lord God doesn't continue with the man. What's the point in, in talking to this idiot? Okay? Because he's not coming, he's not really telling the truth, is he? So he turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? So what does she do? How does she answer? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's true. That's true. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that the woman was deceived. Okay? She's telling the truth. So she's not making, although she is blaming the serpent, she is also telling the truth. Okay? The man was not, well, he was telling sort of the truth, but was evading the obvious, wasn't he? She is telling the truth. So, the excuse and the excuses that are given here, it's important to notice, could only come from a situation that was out of joint in the first place. This conversation is a conversation that should never have been necessary. This is not the kind of conversation that goes on in heaven. Gabriel, what on earth have you been up to? Okay, why did you do that? What? That's that, that kind of stuff doesn't go on. And we know that when we are, get to glory, or we know that those who have gone before us to glory, there's no conversation between God and them saying, um, Geraldine, why did you do that? Linda, why did you do that? What's going on? What are you hiding? That doesn't go on. That kind of twisting of the way things should be happens here in this world. This independent world, this free-thinking world, this world that is full of sin and violence and suffering and pain and lies. So what are the consequences? Well, independence leads to cruelty, corruption, and suffering. And God, in verses 16 through 19, says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I'm not going to go through all of these things, but there are... um, Issues, particularly in childbirth and so on, that should never have been there. And there's relationship, relational problems between husband and wife that should never be there. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Now notice he didn't say to the wife, because you have heeded the voice of the serpent didn't do that because she was tripped. I mean, she shouldn't have listened to the serpent, but she was tripped. Adam wasn't tricked. 
Adam knew what's going on. Because you have listened, heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, I'm going to curse the ground. Well, that's a pretty nasty thing to do. I mean, I'm not nasty of God. I'm just saying as far as its uh, consequences are concerned, because our food comes from the ground. And everything that, that we depend upon comes from the ground. And everything that's beautiful around us is related to the ground, isn't it? Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. If you want to know where hard labor comes from and sweat, it comes from the curse. But both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you. If you want to know where your weeds come from in your yard, it comes from this. It weren't, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. Remember the original creation of man was from the dust of the earth. For dust you are, Adam, thinking you wanted to be like God, thinking you could disobey me by partaking of a fruit that I commanded you not to eat. You're dust. And to dust you shall return. God is not going to go to dust. God is going to be God forever and ever and ever. You, Adam, creature, are going to return to the dust. There are consequences for getting a God complex. There is a consequence for thinking that you're something that you're not. Thinking you can just disobey the word of God. That's all the bad news. I had to do the bad news. I'm sorry. I had to kind of load the bad news up for you like this. So that I could introduce verse 15. In the middle of this, you see, when he's talking to the serpent, God says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity means a a hatred that cannot be uh, mollified. It cannot be, you can't kind of paper over it. You can't uh, dialogue about it. You can't come to a peace agreement about it. It's just hostility. And what's this hostility? It's between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. And if you've got a capital S there, that is, uh, that is correct identification. Because the seed of the woman is to be the destroyer of Satan. His nemesis. He shall bruise your head. And the idea is to crush. You shall bruise his heel. It's a strong word, 
But uh, a bruised heel is painful, but you can recover. A crushed head is very difficult to recover from. In fact, you can't recover from it. It means that you're, you're down and out. You're dead, you're gone. This prophecy is that one day this woman will produce a man, because she's a human being, she's going to produce a human being. And this man will destroy Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I would not like Satan to appear in front of me, and uh, I certainly wouldn't fancy trying to take him on. Okay, he'd eat all of us for breakfast. We are not, as human beings, we are not in any position to deal with Satan. He's a very, very powerful being. He's the God of this world. But this man who is going to come from the, the woman is going to be a man who can face Satan. So we need to look, we need to wait. If we were in this position, if we were uh, in the Old Testament, we need to wait for the appearance of this man who is going to confound and destroy Satan. Who could it be? Abraham, Moses, Elijah, someone like that? No, none of them. None of them were up to the job. David? No, certainly not. Remember his adultery? He's not up to the job. There is one person in Holy Writ, and there's one person in history who is up to the job of facing up to Satan. And that is the child of Mary, the virgin, Jesus Christ. You see, because the virgin birth is hinted at in this, ver- in this chapter. Women don't have a seed. Throughout scripture, it's the men who have a seed. Only once is the woman said to have a seed, and that obviously is because a man is not going to be involved. So we need to look for a virgin-born destroyer of Satan. I know of one. His name is Jesus. And he came into the world nearly 2,000 years ago. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. And it pains me, I have to say, it pains me when I look around. I love decorations and Christmas lights and all of that sort of stuff, but it pains me that so many of them, obviously, they, it's not about Jesus anymore. And even when you wish somebody happy Christmas, you know, you might get back a limp happy holidays from them. I mean, they can't even say his name. And yet, who is he? He's the one who's going to destroy Satan. He's the one who, by implication, is going to put everything right again. He's going to bring paradise back. And now we know his name's Jesus, and Jesus means Savior. So not only is he going to destroy Satan, but he's going to redeem us. Can you imagine before the New Testament was written? Can you imagine 
waiting and waiting and waiting for thousands of years for this promised one. That's where I leave you. With the long wait for this promised seed. When is he going to come? That is the question. When is he going to come? We say, um, that we believe in Jesus. We say that we worship him and that we trust him and, and we do. But do we realize his significance? That's what I'm trying to bring out here. Do we realize what he signifies? He signifies the restoration of what was lost. He signifies uh, communication with God as it was in the beginning. Without shame, without fear or trepidation, without us having to check ourselves to see what sinful thoughts we may have been thinking or what sinful deeds we've done or not done, good things that we should have done that that were not done. We don't have to do any of that. He signifies putting everything right. So Christmas is about that. It's about hope. It's about peace restored. It's about joy that is that never gives up. And it is about the fact that this first prophecy, it hasn't been completely fulfilled. Satan's still alive and well and dwelling in pro- on planet Earth. But he's a defeated foe. And when Jesus returns, that's when he'll get what's coming to him. In the meantime, Jesus has come. And we need to trust him. We need to worship him. We need to believe in him. We need to make him the focus of this Christmas. Let's make sure that we do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... um, Help us to recall what Christmas is really about. We are so privileged because we live this side of the cross, this side of the first advent. Jesus has come into the world. And Jesus has faced Satan and told him to depart. And even though it may have seen that Satan had the victory, it was a pirate victory, it was nothing. It was actually in your plan. It was the redemption and salvation of the world that was being undertaken by Jesus on the cross. It was victory. And in his resurrection, Lord, he brought life for anyone who would trust in him. So Christmas, Father, is about hope. It's about truth. May we cling to that truth and may we rejoice in that hope. Until Jesus comes. Amen.